Welcome into the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Got a very, very interesting program for you today, folks. You know, there's a lot of intrigue, a lot of mystery, and a lot of romance behind the whole international drug dealing cartel type activity. You know, when you talk about South America drug dealing, uh, when you talk about the mafioso in, in Italy, when you talk about any of that sort of stuff, movies have been made, scripts have been written, books have been produced, and I think people, they gravitate to it. And I know I gravitate to it because I find a lot of it fascinating. Well, boy, have I got a fascinating story for you today. A good friend of the show, Ron Shepsuk, is back with us today, and he's brought us a fascinating story. In fact, this story is so fascinating, and it seems so over-the-top, folks, Man, I had to bring it to you today. If I were to tell you that, we're going to tell you the story of Jesus Ruiz Aneo, who was the first billion-dollar cocaine distributor. It's the first billion-dollar load to come into the UK. So we'll, we'll clear it up with Ron. He'll, he'll, he'll set me straight. The name of the book, and it's available by Wild Blue Press, is The Real Mr. Big. And he was Mr. Big and known as Mr. Big to a lot of his clients. How a Colombian refugee became the United Kingdom's most notorious cocaine kingpin. The, that's the name of the book. Ron Shepsuk is our guest. Let's welcome him back to True Crime Tuesday. Ron, welcome back to Thank the, you. the program. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate is it. it. Is, it the, is it the first billion-dollar cocaine payload, or was he the first cocaine billionaire, or both? Well, according to the British authorities, and this is not... You know, my um, uh, estimation of him is it came from British authorities. They say he was the first billion pound, actually billion pound uh, cocaine uh, dealer in British history. That means uh, distributing and trafficking in um, in cocaine. And he did that over roughly a 10 year period. That's insane. I, you know, when you when you think about it, and of course, the pound is valued much higher. It's always been much higher than the U.S. What is it? Yeah, in? it's almost par now. It's, yeah, it's almost par now. It, I, but at that time, what? It probably was about 17 oh, yeah. cents higher? Oh, yeah. It was higher. probably maybe 20, 30 cents more. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, than the American dollar. Yeah, it was it was substantial. Right. On that. Uh, but, you know, it earned it earned him, and the media called him the Pablo Escobar of, of um, British cocaine trafficking. And, uh, you know, he didn't operate like Escobar. He no. was uh, essentially nonviolent, and he didn't have the ego that uh, Escobar had or the public uh, personality. But uh, yeah, he was up there, you know, in terms of uh, actual sales. And, and we'll talk a little bit about Jesus and, and exactly how he operated it, a little bit later in the program. I want to get into first, Ron, exactly how you meet up with Jesus, because <laughs> it, it's a it's a very interesting story. I mean, as you stated, Jesus is very much a a down-to-earth type of guy, very unassuming. And and how is it that you run across, am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Is uh, it? Hanau, say Hanau. Hanau, Hanau, okay. Yeah, uh, right. Jesus Ruiz Hanau. How, how is it you run across Jesus? Well, I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of interest from uh, people in prison, right? I get uh, people always, uh, maybe once a month, I'll get somebody from prison who thinks they have a story. They may have killed a bunch of people and trafficking and drugs, and they figure that's all there is to their story to get, you know, to get a book. And uh, 
it takes more than that. It takes a really interesting uh, backstory, you know, to to make a book mm-hmm. on that. And uh, one day I got an email in 2019. This was before the COVID thing mm-hmm. uh, from from a woman, uh, and it was his daughter Stephanie, and she wrote me and she said uh, that her father, uh, you know, had followed me. I'd read I read a couple of my books. I had mentioned him in one book. I didn't remember that, <laughs> but I had mentioned him in one of one of my books, and she said that. Uh, her father was interested to know if I'd be uh, uh, willing to do a book with him. And she explained to me that he was in prison. And then she sent me five clips, uh, newspaper articles from the British press, Manchester Guardian, uh, uh, the um, uh, some of the other newspapers and uh, Telegram. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I sort of looked, you know, it was early in the morning when I got this. And uh, I, I said, yeah, here goes another one. And so I read the uh, I read the. Uh, articles and they were amazing they were you know talking about him how he had had uh, operated uh, you know as as a uh, uh, a big time cocaine dealer and how he had been caught and uh you know uh, the the price of cocaine uh jumped 50% after he was arrested in in Britain you know and this was this was stated in the newspaper articles and so it goes to show you the the, the impact he had on the drug and I said wait a minute I said this is really interesting and so I, I emailed her back and I said, uh, yeah, I said, is it, was it, I said, was it would be possible to talk to your, to your father? And she said, um, uh, well, he's in prison now, but he's going to be getting out. And that's why, you know, he had contacted, uh, he wanted me to contact you. And I said, well, tell him that uh, I'd be willing to talk to him. I'll give him my phone number and we can arrange a phone call. So he, he did call me from prison wow. and, uh, uh, this is in, in British prison, and uh, we we talked, and uh, I said, yeah, you know, I said, I really, I really like your story. I, I think I could do something with it. I, he says, well, I'm I'm in I'm in prison, but I'll be getting out in a little while, and um, uh, we we can maybe uh, meet up. And I said, yeah, I could come back. I said, I could come to Colombia. We could we could do the story. So, anyways, um, this happened, and the, the he he wasn't getting out of prison right away. It was it was delays, delays, and I I you know went on to some other couple of things, and finally one day. Um, uh, he, I got an email and, uh, his daughter said he's getting out of prison and, uh, he's going back to Columbia, give him a couple of months. And then, uh, you two could get together. And I said, okay, that sounds great with me. So, uh, I waited a couple of months and I contacted him and he said, uh, yeah. So I talked to him on the phone and we, uh, uh, you know, I told him what I can do and he, he was interested and, um, and he said, uh, you know, can, can we meet? I said, yeah. I said, I'll come to Columbia for a week. Mm-hmm. And I'll do the research for the book with you. I'll do the interviews on that. And I said I can get uh, other material from the uh, from the internet and from from other books and libraries and all that. So uh, I ended up uh, going to Columbia, and uh, I ended up in a hotel. I got him a hotel room, and um, we sat there. And this is interesting. This was just when the COVID uh, uh, crisis uh, began to break. Okay. And the first person in the United States had been identified with COVID. Okay. And I didn't think too much of it. So we did the interviews and all that. I got enough information. And I said, I'll come back again if I have to. It closed down because of the COVID thing. It just took off. And so uh, uh, we were stranded. I couldn't get to Columbia again. And I said, well, we'll just do the stuff uh, over the internet. And I said, email and, and the internet. And I said, I'll call you too. And he said, yeah, okay, that's great. So uh, we ended up uh, doing that, and I did the book, and uh, uh, you know I had him, I had him write out stuff, and um, he sent me stuff, and I'd look at it, I'd edit it, 
I'd ask him more questions and it worked. You know, I, I got the book and I did the book proposal uh, before I did the book. And I got the contract from uh, Wild Blue Press and then uh, I sent it in and uh, we got the book done. And um, uh, it was uh, it was amazing. And since then, we've become friends. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I've, I've been to Columbia a couple of times and I've, I've uh, talked with him and uh, uh, he's got a low profile in, in Colombia. You know, I mean, he's one of the biggest drug traffickers ever in that country, but not many people know about him because, you know, his whole his whole um, uh, approach to uh, the, the drug trade was to keep a low profile. And uh, so nobody really <laughs> knows that much about him and everything that he did operated in Britain. You know, so uh, he didn't he, he operated in Colombia, you know, in terms of getting the cocaine and all that. But he, right. but he was essentially operating out of Britain. And so uh, there wasn't that much attention paid to him. Ron, I, I got to ask you, when when it comes to just getting to know the man, I mean, first of all, you agree to go to Colombia. You agree to, uh, you know, for this this one week and to sit down with them. I, I know that you say he's he's very unassuming, but yeah. was there an air to him of, of any criminality whatsoever? I, I know that, and and we'll, we'll if, if you meet him on the street, you thought he, he was just a nice elderly gentleman, you know, uh, well mannered, um, you know, quiet. You know, he carried a gun, but he never used it. You know, he never used a gun. He never had to use a gun. He always was able to talk people out of situations. I was used, able to use his diplomatic skills on that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, you would never know that this guy was um, was a big-time drug trafficker. He doesn't look mean. <laughs> you know, he looks no. very normal. Have you seen no. pictures in the book? Yes. You know, he looks a yeah. uh, very, very, very normal guy. And um, so, yeah, it, it was uh, very interesting. And, you know, I always felt relaxed around him, you know, and never had any any problems with it. And, uh, and uh, you know, I call him every week now, you know, on, on the phone, um, and and we talk. When you met with him in Colombia, was was there a feeling like? Did you feel like there were police surrounding you? Did you feel like maybe no, there was a no, a? no, when he went back to Colombia, he was unrecognizable. Really, <laughs> you know, he has he has spent seventeen years in jail. Mm-hmm. When uh, when he contacted me, he had already spent seventeen years in jail, and uh, he got out. He spent about I guess about eighteen, nineteen, something like that. And uh, he got out. They deported him. He landed at the airport. They checked his credentials, all that, and they let him back into the country. And that was it. He went back, you know, back up to um, to uh, Pereira in um, the Kaka Valley re- region where the the cocaine is grown and all that. And you know, uh, you would say, isn't that dangerous for uh, ex big time drug trafficker to go back to uh, the scene of the crime? You know, there's a lot of enemies, right? He didn't have any real enemies. When Griselda Blanco, remember her? Yeah. You know, the, the famous um, Colombian um, black widow um, drug trafficker was uh, uh, deported from the United States back to Colombia. She was she was dead within a year because she had, you know, she was a violent, very uh, vicious person. And uh, she had a lot of people killed. So she had a lot of enemies. You know, Jesus never killed anybody, you know, and not many people knew who he was, you know, uh, even until almost near the end. They didn't know that he was the big guy that was operating uh, the drug trafficking ring from Colombia. Well, and we'll get into the story here in a little bit. I want to I want to focus a little bit about uh, the the kind of the the meeting between you and him, and then I want to get into his story a little bit here before we go to our break. So you you meet with Jesus, and and you're starting to get the story 
from him as you're getting this story from him. And I know you've seen different different uh, newspaper articles, and you're and you're you've got the gist of the st- story. You've met the man. Is it hard to believe that all of this activity has come from this man and from his associates? I mean, does do two and two add up to four? Does it does it seem a little hard to believe to you? Yeah, I mean, if you met this guy, you would not think that he was a, a drug trafficker. You know, he's like I said, he's very pleasant. Uh, he's very soft spoken and very intelligent, you know, and very uh, personable. And he doesn't have any of what you would think of movie-wise, you know, the movie uh, stereotype of the drug trafficker, you know, big like Escobar, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, very high-profile, very violent, uh, revengeful, and all that sort of stuff. None of that None of that showed. He, he looked at the drug trade as a business. You know, he viewed himself as a legitimate businessman. And people forget that, uh, you know, uh, drug trafficking is a criminal activity, but you have to exhibit a lot of the same skills that you do running a, a legitimate business. You know what I mean? In, right. in terms of distribution, in terms of hiring people and all that. And uh, so, yeah, so, you know, he operated, um, you know, like, like, like a big time businessman. And uh, the only thing was he was dealing in a criminal activity, which was drug trafficking and all that. And uh, his whole philosophy towards drug trafficking was on a business model. You know, you treat your your customers right. Um, uh, you focus on business. Uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, and it worked. You know, it worked. There was a few other things that Jesus did that were very unusual too. It was not just the importing of the drugs, but then he had to export the cash back to his bosses. Yeah, and he this had- was amazing. Um, in, in terms of number of employees, he had about. 80 employees in Britain working for him. But in terms of getting the drugs back to, uh, or the money back to uh, Colombia, he had close to 20,000 people working for him. That's crazy. Working for him. They were, they were, they were uh, laundering the money for him on that sort of stuff. You know, they, he would send these, what they call gyros. They were money orders back to, um, back to Colombia. And he couldn't do more than 500 pounds at a time. So you imagine that, but he had like 20,000 people working for him. Uh, he estimates uh, that were, they were moving the money on that sort of stuff. And uh, can you imagine that? <laughs> you I, know, I can't I mean, imagine. You're not only dealing with that many people, but you're dealing with them criminally. So yet you can't operate like a, like a legitimate businessman, you know, uh, everything on, on board. You have to operate uh, illegally. I can't imagine being an investigator and trying to track down 20,000 people who have sent 500 pounds a piece. Yeah. I, th- yeah, that would be impossible. Well, you know, it's almost it's almost impossible uh, to do that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and you know, the the police had no clue who he was until near the end, uh, when one of the one of the people that he confided in that he was the real Mister Big, you know, was caught by the police, and he he gave him up in in return for uh, a, a leniency on the sentence. And uh, when they did start working on him, I, I talked to four, the four lead investigators on a British. British law enforcement that um, that worked his case, they said there was 250 people working his case. That's crazy. And they had like four different separate investigations going on, you know, trying to nail this guy. And if you, you notice my book, I have uh, surveillance photographs, right? Yes. Uh, yep. In there. Uh, Jesus gave them to me uh, because they were they were picked up in discovery. You know, the, um, the law enforcement had to give them up. So he, he shared it with me. But they were, they were tracking this guy, you know, and uh, he knew it, too. 
he knew it too and uh he knew that the writing was on the wall too but there was really nothing he can do about it you know i mean you're not gonna you're not gonna out, out fox 250 law enforcement uh officers no not at all let's let's start from the beginning here ron tell us a little bit about uh a little bit about Jesus and a little bit about his his upbringing and his beginnings. Uh, tell us about where Jesus grew up and and his aspirations to be, uh, let's just say, uh, uh, to get out of the, the poorness in Colombia. Yeah, I mean, he grew up like a, a, a normal uh, Colombian. Um, uh, he, you know, he wasn't he wasn't uh, rich. He, he wasn't really poor, but he was, you know, poor enough to make him want to uh, aspire to the better things in life. Uh, he grew up in the Kaka Valley, which was a big cocoa uh, growing uh, region. Um, and, uh, you know, with the coca is the stuff that the cocaine's made from. And so everybody was sort of involved in some way in the cocoa trade on that. And uh, he aspired to a better life. And he looked at uh, the, the uh, cocaine trade as the way to do it because he knew about it. His father was involved in it in a petty way. And uh, he started off, um, you know, with a, meeting these two guys, Pedro and Jose, who had a big influence on his life. They were both dead, so I couldn't talk to them. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, they, they, they started to uh, deal uh, small amounts of cocaine in, in, the, uh, in, in the area and uh, made some money. And uh, one of the two uh, uh, friends, um, Jose, um, had contacts in Sicily of all region, and uh, everybody knew what Sicily was. You know, it was the home of the mafia, Sicilian mafia, and all that. And he came up with they came up with the bright idea that that maybe uh, they can work out some kind of arrangement with the Sicilian mafia. And uh, Jose contacted them, and uh, uh, they agreed to meet. So uh, Jose um, Jesus volunteered. Uh, to go to uh, to go to Italy, and he met in Rome, and uh, he was only 20 years old, and so he showed up, and they were kind of shocked that this young guy was there on that. But uh, he impressed them, and they said that they they had contacts in England, and England would be a good place. It was an untapped market, and so he ended up going to England, and he met with uh, some of the Sicilian mafia reps. Uh, they were impressed with him, and uh, he went back to. Uh, back to Colombia, and he told them that he had made contact and that they were willing to work out something. So he started small. Uh, he started sending stuff through the, um, the mail in envelopes and all that. And, uh, and then they graduated to, uh, to uh, sending bigger um, shipments. And um, uh, the um, uh, way they did it was they would uh, use boats, uh, uh, liners cruise liners that went across the um, uh the ocean from uh from colombia to uh, spain and they used barcelona as as a port and uh they, they started shipping stuff to uh, to england uh, or, to, or to spain and from there it was shipped all over uh all over europe and that's how he got started in um in the uh in the drug trade and this was back <coughs> in the uh, in the early mid mid 80s now what's in Impressive about this point in his life, not only just being so young here, Ron, but <coughs> but approaching these these seasoned gangsters and these guys who are used to kind of a no BS type policy and, and seeing through manipulation. And Jesus came across as genuine. I mean, not yeah. only genuine, but but humble. 
and and something that these guys were not used to seeing. It kind of threw him off guard, didn't it? Yeah, I mean his age plus his whole approach plus his intelligence, you know, all all impressed the uh, impressed the Italians and uh, and Jesus has a lot of confidence in himself and he knew that uh, that he could pull it off. And so he came back, and that's how they got started on that. But what happened was, uh, this was back in the uh, the mid-'80s and all that, um, mm-hmm. he started to work with the Sicarios, and they started to use him as a negotiator with um, with problems they had. The Sicarios are ruthless hitmen, uh, real, real famous. Uh, Escobar and the Medellin cartel employed them. And... Uh, Jesus is like a nonviolent guy. He he really doesn't like uh, uh, killing. I mean, he, I mean, there's no way that he's going to get involved. But anyways, the Sicarios, you know, would would kill somebody first, ask questions later. Yes. On that, and so he was kind of really bothered by this, and he started to complain to them on that, and it started to piss him off. It started to piss off the Sicarios, and then one day his brother was was at a um, a place. I think it was a restaurant. And he overheard a conversation where some men, and they turned out to be Sicarios, were saying they were going to kill Jesus. So he got on his motorcycle and he went back home and he told Jesus, he says, hey, hey, brother, he says, you're going to have to make a decision here. He says, the Sicarios are going are to kill you. And uh, he, he, he thought about it and he says, um, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave. So he left. Uh, he, he took his wife, but then he was married, and uh, he fled. He fled uh, Colombia, and he ended up in uh, Spain. And from there, he went to uh, he went to England, and um, uh, he he didn't he didn't get into drug trafficking then, um, uh, because he didn't have any contacts in Colombia. But what he did was um, he ended up uh, running um, uh, a restaurant. He ended up cleaning. Um, uh, office buildings, you know, as mm-hmm. as a cleaner mm-hmm. on that, and uh, he ended up winning a hundred thousand uh, pounds in a in a lottery, <laughs> <laughs> and he made it. He made it uh, famous. Uh, he became sort of semi-famous in England because of that spot of ball. That was the name of the lottery mm-hmm. on that sort of stuff, and uh, and lived a very normal life. You know, he was working on that, and then uh, one day he he decided that. Um, that uh, there was really opportunity to open up about cocaine. He said, because there was really nothing going on in terms of distribution and all that. And so um, uh, he ended up, uh, he says he's going to study the market. He's going to make contacts. So he went back to, uh, uh, to uh, Colombia and uh, hooked up with the Norte Valley cartel. Now, the Medellin and the Cali cartel are the two most famous uh, cartels in, um, in, uh, in Colombia. And uh, the Norte Valley Cartel, which is from the region where where Jesus grew up, um, uh, is the third cartel. Third cartel, and it it was um, a minor at that point because okay. the uh, the drug trade was dominated by the Medellin and the Cali cartels. Mm-hmm. But he ended up meeting um, um, uh, some of the members of the leading members of the cartel, and he worked out a deal with them. He said that he would be the distribu- distributor for them in England. And uh, so that set up his his uh, his connection on that. He was related to one of the members of uh, one of the leading members of the Valley Norte Cartel, second cousin. He said he never met him. This guy was really violent and, and very important in in the drug trade. But anyways, uh, so he went back to England and uh, and uh, started to uh, to uh, uh, deal in co- in uh, in cocaine. And 
he was telling he told me he said that you know it got really big in fact he said he was on the bus you know he's riding a bus uh working there you know for whatever an hour mm-hmm. and he was dealing in these big drug deals and he said people would call him on on the phone and all that and uh Finally, he said, it was just too much. I decided I would go into the trade full-time. And that's how he ended up in the trade full-time. And this was about 1995, 96. What's, what's crazy, Ron, is reading the book, he said, you know, he actually in, enjoyed working regular jobs. That, yeah, I know. You yeah. Know, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's uh, like a regular guy. He's, uh, you know, he likes, he likes working. Yeah, uh, he likes money. That's his problem, and he likes <laughs> women. <laughs> well, I think we <laughs> like all, money. Yeah, so he's gonna have he's gonna have to have a, a lot of money on that. So, yeah, but uh, so he ended up uh, uh, deciding that he was gonna go back. <laughs> so he went back to um, to Columbia in ninety five ninety six, and uh, uh, reestablished uh, the the connections with the Norte Valley. By then. They were the cartel in uh, England because <clears throat> many cartel was taken down in 90, 90, uh, 93 when um, uh, Escobar was killed on a rooftop in, in Medellin. Mm-hmm. And in 95, <clears throat> the uh, Rodriguez Orwella brothers, the leading members of the Cali cartel, were taken down. So there was a vacuum in the drug trade out of Colombia and somebody had to fill it. So the Norte Valley was ready to move. And so they moved into that vacuum, uh, uh, which meant they, they had a lot of drugs to move. Okay, and so uh, Jesus went back to England, and uh, that's how the really big connection started. Okay, you know, they now worked out, they worked out deals with um, a, distri- a distribution route through Spain, and um, and uh, by then, okay, now help no, them, Ron. Let's let's the European Ron. Let's Ron. Let's let's stop right there. Let's let's take our break right now um, because it's it, this is kind of at that apex where where things are starting to pick up uh, with with uh, this this main cartel taking over and things are starting to ramp up with Jesus. When we come back, we're going to talk about how things start starting to get bigger now for, for Jesus and things are really going to start to flow into England. When we come back, we'll talk about how Jesus's empire is starting to grow by leaps and bounds and how the operation is starting to get bigger and how he's going to have to start to figure out not only how to get bigger shipments into England, but also how to get this money out of England and how to get it back to Colombia. It's a trick, folks. There's a there's a huge magic trick on how to how to get all this done. Our guest Ron Shepsuk is going to tell us how this happens. The book is The Real Mr. Big: How a Colombian Refugee Became the United Kingdom's Most Notorious Cocaine Kingpin. It's written by our guest Ron Shepsuk along with the actual Mr. Big that's in this book. Jesus Ruiz Hanal. We'll talk about that, a little bit about that in just a bit. When we come back, more about the real Mr. Big. How a Colombian refugee became the United Kingdom's most notorious cocaine kingpin. We'll talk more with Ron Shepsuk in just a moment right here on True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Ron Shepsuk. The book is The Real Mr. Big, How a Colombian Refugee Became the United Kingdom's Most Notorious Cocaine cocaine Kingpin. Ron, before we left for the break, we were talking about how now we're down to one major cocaine cartel that is pushing this cocaine into the United Kingdom. And of course... Our Mr. Big that we're talking about here in the book, Jesus Ruiz Hanau, he's the man who's got 
the entire United Kingdom, so to speak, under his thumb with cocaine. He's taking in the major shipments, and he's also going to try and get this money back to his overlords there in 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 uh, Colombia. So how does he do it? I mean, this is one big magic trick he's got to try and pull off. Yeah. Well, you know, before I do that, um, the big question is, uh, you would say, why didn't he go to the United States, right? Yes. Which, uh, which had established all that and sort of stuff. And I asked him that question. I said, why did you why did you end up in, in England rather than, um, than the United States? And he said, well, he said, first of all, he feared the DEA. He said the DEA was was ruthless, mm-hmm. and that um, that uh, eventually that he, if he had to deal with the U.S., that uh, the way their their operation worked, uh, it, he would be caught. He said, "There's no question about it." So he feared the uh, DEA, and he didn't want to deal with them. And if you looked at England, the laws were lax. Uh, the, the really at that time, this is back in the '80s, <clears throat> the British police had no clue about about cocaine trafficking at all. Mm-hmm. So it was an open market, you know, and, um, and uh, the, 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 the U S market was becoming saturated. Uh, and so he, he made a conscious decision that, uh, that he would go to England. And so that's what he chose um, uh, was to go to England. You know, it, it also seems too, that their investigative techniques were a little lax as well, that, that he could pretty much do as he pleased if he, if he took a common sense approach to it, and he did, it seems like he he really did play it right, and he played it he played it cool. He he wasn't too flashy, like you mentioned earlier in the program. He he really did he did play it very common sense. He he yeah. he played but it you close know, to the vest. The, the problem is um, when you're dealing with uh, uh, drug trade, and mm-hmm. this is what I've noticed: the the uh, good guys law enforcement are always behind the curve at the beginning. Yeah. You know, because, because the, uh, the, uh, drug traffickers have an advantage on that, but eventually they got so much resources and they pay so much attention that eventually they catch up to the bad guys mm-hmm. on that. And, uh, that's why so many bad guys get caught. You know, if they would make it a conscious decision to get out at a certain point before law enforcement caught up to them, they, they would eventually get out with it. And he since almost made that decision. He got out. He was actually out of the trade and nobody knew who he was. And uh, he was planning to enjoy his millions and all that. And then he made a mistake. He, he uh, confided to, uh, to a, a money launderer that was working for him that he was the Mr. Big. This guy was raving about this smart guy that everybody was talking about that was operating the, uh, the uh, controlling the, the the cocaine trade in England and all that, and he couldn't resist himself. He said, "I am the Mister Big." And the guy goes, "No way." He goes, "Yes, I am Mister Big," and he described some details. And the guy said, "Really, you're Mister Big?" But eventually, a couple months later, the guy was caught by the by the uh, British authorities, and um, he ended up uh, uh, giving up uh, Jesus. And that's when the investigation started. You know, and uh, that's when they applied uh, all their <laughs> all their uh resources uh to bring this guy down because they realized how big he was and that he was the the the, uh, the central uh cog that was um uh, creating this big cocaine epidemic in england well ron i gotta ask too is there such a thing as pushing too much product and trying to handle too much cash because well seems- he, yeah you know i talked to him about this too i said you should have known from the example of um 
the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel that you can become too big. You know what I mean? You yeah. become too big and yeah. you become too visible and you become too easy a target for, for law enforcement. And he realized that. He says, but, you know, it was so successful and so good that you just wanted wanted more, you know, he says. And I did I did make a, cha- a, a conscious decision to get out of the trade, but I made it a little bit too late, and I made that mistake. So where's the threshold? If 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 um, yeah, d- did Jesus say he thought he knew where the threshold was? I mean, because he, there's some clues in the book that he says, you know, I pushed to this point, and I thought, okay, that's good. Now I'm going to push to this point, and he kind of set these goals for himself, but there had to be a point where he kind of thought maybe he stepped over the line. Did he ever confide in you where he thought this was the point where I stepped over the line? Well, he, he made the mistake with, with that, with that money launderer I told you about, which, which started with tipped off to the, the, um, the police. Yeah. This big guy was operating in, in Columbia. Yeah. He made, he made that mistake. And, uh, he, he said that was the, he said he thought that was the big reason why, uh, he, uh, the law enforcement caught on to him and why they were able to launch their investigation. And like I said, once the police catch on to somebody, they got so much resources and so much so much time and, uh, and knowledge that, that eventually you're going to get caught. You know, I could count the number of people that got away with uh, criminality, especially drug trafficking, on one, one hand. You know, um, I did a book on um, Frank Matthews mm-hmm. called Black Caesar, right? And... Uh, and uh, he he uh, disappeared with twenty million dollars and a beautiful woman, but no one ever 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 knew anything more about him. There's no pictures, no 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 snitches, and no one, and uh, nothing about him. I mean, absolutely nothing. So he could have been killed by somebody before that. But uh, you could count people like that on one hand. Mostly everybody gets caught. This is why I'll never be a criminal. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you know, Jesus did something that I think was not only amic—not uh, amicable, but uh, it was honorable, um, and at the same time, probably saved his life. And and that is, on his way out, he not only paid off people who could have been potential enemies, but he he paid his debts on the way out, and he he settled all scores, so to speak. So he made sure that on his way out, he told people, "I plan on retiring." Which normally you don't you don't tell people you're well, doing business with you're going to retire. Right. But was, he, they, they, yeah, you're right. I mean, there were a lot of people that were upset because he was yeah. so valuable to them. Yeah, but on that. But he told them, he said, "I'm I'm just going to get out and all that," and uh, and he did get out. You know, he was operating anonymously uh, in private life. Um, enjoying the uh, the lifestyle that, that that came with the money he made from the trade but again i told you he made that mistake you know he couldn't he couldn't um, he couldn't keep his mouth shut but the other part of it too uh, and, ron uh, is he tried to make right? sure he made it good so so if you know he 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 didn't he didn't leave somebody in the lurch because the way you get killed as a civilian yeah. is you Yeah he didn't kill anybody so he didn't have any enemies Right he didn't right. he didn't stiff anybody one of his motives was to operate honorably yep. and uh, honestly Yep. with people they knew his word was good yep he said i never broke my word i always kept my word on that so he had a good reputation and even though they were upset there was nobody with scores to settle with him now and that's why he was able to move back to columbia and you know uh there's nobody really that that, that had a vendetta against him wasn't so there... he was able to uh to uh retire 
in Colombia until <laughs> until what happened a couple months ago. Wasn't it? Well, and we'll get to that at the end of the program here. It, it wasn't there one group though in the book that that kind of had a little bit of the red ass, if you pardon the uh, the expression here, that he was leaving and they still wanted him in the game. Who was that? Well, he never told me that, but they were they were uh, people back in in in, uh, in Colombia, uh, probably with the uh, Norte Valley cartel. Okay, you know that needed a really valuable distributor with his experience and knowledge of the drug trade on that then. But you know they was there something thing about it, right? He he made he made the decision. Was there somebody like said, in- never had any scores to settle? You know they didn't say, well, he's not going to work for us. He did this to me, therefore I'm going to kill him. Was he there, didn't do any of that. Was there somebody in Spain who wanted him back in the game too? Yeah, there were. Yeah, there were. There were people that were in the trade. Yeah, there were people in Spain, in England, and um, like I said, he operated um, quietly and uh, and uh, was able to get away with it. But yeah, so when he when he was out of the trade, he just made a conscious decision, uh, and they and they really, like I said, there was some grumbling, but. Uh, and uh, he told me that they were up, there were some people that were upset uh, back in back in Colum- back in Colombia. But uh, he said I had made my decision, and uh, uh, he said as far as I know, they respected it. There's some pretty harrowing tales for Jesus as well when he goes to jail. Um, one of the ones I found absolutely fascinating, I got to tell you, Ron, is when he goes to jail in the United Kingdom. And the, the fascinating tale for me is, is going there, and it's, it's a lot different than our system here in, in the United States, in that, you know, when, when you hear about different segregated areas of the jail in the United States, that it's, it's pretty much different groups keep to themselves, or if they do clash, they clash as enemies and they go up against each other you almost never hear of one group trying to recruit another group, especially religiously. And, yeah, you're right. and I think, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. He was saying, he, he said that there were a lot of Muslims in, um, in jail and that they were powerful and all that. And they did put pressure on him to convert to Islam. And, uh, his brother-in-law, Mario Tuscan, who was his right-hand man in his organization, was also in jail. He got sentenced to 17 years, and they put pressure on him, and he succumbed. He, he became a Muslim in prison, but once he got out, he rejected it. He rejected it. But uh, Jesus was able to, you know, to uh, resist their, their efforts, and uh, he, didn't, he, didn't become a, uh, he didn't become a Muslim. And uh, it didn't really affect uh, his relationship with them. You know, they never really tried to, to, to harm him or anything. I found that fascinating. I, you know, that that went on in 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 British jails, um, and I don't know why. I, you know, I know that recruitment goes on in in United States jails, and I know yeah, you got the the, the skinheads, you got um, the black Muslims, you know, yeah, yeah, they have their own little groups. And I know but that they don't really try to recruit you, you know. Well, it it does go on in the black population. Yeah. That, that there's there's recruitment that goes on in the black population to to recruit into the Muslims uh, within the black population, but yeah. it doesn't it doesn't cross racial borders generally. 
Um, and that's it's not a racist statement or anything, but it just doesn't happen in the American population. But it's odd that it happens in UK jails. Now, keep in mind what's also what's also uh, pointed out in the book is that Jesus was one of the first Colombians in some of these jails that he went to. Yeah, yeah, he was on that, and uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, uh, the Colombian population in England. Um, after Madrid, it's supposed to be the second most popular location for Colombians. So one of the reasons he was able to operate successfully was the population. There was like maybe 10,000 Colombians in, um, in, um, in London, and he was able to use that population uh, for his uh, uh, criminal, enter- uh, criminal endeavors. That's crazy. Crazy indeed. So... I want to I want to talk a little bit about the delivery systems and how things worked. We we mentioned it a little bit before, but I want to get a little bit in depth here, Ron, as as we are starting to dwindle on our time here. Um, because the system is twofold. First of all, you'd mentioned that you know you got to get the cocaine over there, especially as the as the keys of cocaine get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, it, it doesn't start, it starts with ships. So you bring stuff over in ships. But then as you're talking about having to bring over, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilograms of cocaine, you've got to have different distribution routes. So, you know, eventually there's there's mules and there's airplanes and there's ships and there's different delivery systems in order to get this stuff over. And there's suitcases that are hollowed out and there's different innovations. And it seems like Jesus and his crew used a lot of these different innovations in order to get this stuff over there. Yeah. Yeah. One of the main reasons they're able to move drugs so successfully was um, uh, the lack of borders, the European Union. Yes. It was set up. And uh, there were no borders. There were no uh, border controls between countries. So once the once the shipments landed in Spain, they were able to go all the way across in lorries, take the lorries and uh, deliver them right to right to England with no questions asked on that sort of stuff. So ironically, that helped uh, his his operation. And then, of course, something happens, which you could never do it today. And that is, of course, 9-11. Uh, and, yeah. and terrorism, which yeah. has shut down basically a lot of that, those trade routes, if you will. Um, well, actually, the, it's still it's still free. I mean, you could go across Europe, you know, with um, with one passport. I mean, uh, you know, how many true. countries are now? Thirty one, something like that. Yeah. And, well, and you, with, could, you could go across there and uh, it's, it's very it's very easy. I mean, it's very simple to do that. But could you travel with that kind of weight? I mean, you, you couldn't take that kind sure, of I weight. Mean, you're doing it in lorries. It's like shipping um, um, food, fish, anything. The only thing you're doing is you're moving a criminal enterprise, but you're moving them in the same lorries that you use for regular uh, uh, regular products. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and the other thing to do, too, uh, to remember is that um, uh, a lot of this cocaine gets confiscated. The police do, do yeah. find a lot of it, you know, yeah. on that sort of stuff. But it's an endless product, <laughs> you know. If you lose a thousand pounds of fish, you know that's a really a substantial loss. You lose a thousand pounds of cocaine, that's not a big deal. You just go back and uh, and make some more. 
And um, the other thing to remember is that only about 15% of all of all uh, drugs uh, are confiscated by the by the authorities. That's only it? 15%. 15%, that's it? Yeah. That's what they estimate. That's coming from the own from the law enforcement's own sources. <clears throat> wow, that doesn't seem like a lot. No, it isn't. And all you do is just make some more. If you lose, you know, you hear. That's what makes me laugh is when you hear these uh, incredible busts. Right? There was one shipment in um, 1988 uh, where the Cali Cartel were shipping drugs through through um, um, St. Petersburg. And they, they found it, they discovered it, and they estimated it was $1 billion worth of drugs. You know, and you say, wow, that's incredible. That's really gonna hurt them. It didn't make a dent in their trade. I mean, you know, they, they had so much other uh, cocaine that all they did was just re-supply re, uh, the, uh, the lost cocaine and they're on their way. There is a uh, there's a bust. I think it was was it summer or fall this past year, 2023. That was a hundred thousand keys of cocaine, and I think it was in Europe. And yeah. I thought, wow, hundred thousand keys of cocaine. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, the, the law enforcement is good at telling you when they make a bust, but they're not too good at telling you about all the drugs they get through. But you know, you know, when you when you when you read this book, Mister Big, that that we're talking about today, the real Mister Big, a hundred thousand keys is nothing. No, it's no. a drop in the hat. It's it's no, not it, even it, one it, delivery. Yeah, no, it isn't. And uh, and you know, he had uh, he had like five or six stash houses around London, and one of his um, uh, pet uh, ideas in terms of um, uh, business was to separate the the drugs from the uh, money. So if, if one was caught, they wouldn't be, you wouldn't get wiped out, you know, from both the money that, that you're making and that you're shipping back to Colombia and the um, cocaine, which was you're distributing in, in, uh, in England on that. And uh, he told me that one of his stash houses had $14 million in it. Oh my God. In money, you know, just, just money. And he kept, you know, he kept uh, what was it, something like thirty thousand dollars in his car, just oh. as extra money on that. And <laughs> you know, he he told me uh, uh, he loved to travel and he loved Spain. And uh, in one of his weekend excursions, he went to Spain with a, with some of his men. He spent a hundred thousand dollars. You know, a hundred thousand pounds. Excuse me. Just um, on a weekend. On that weekend. Just just on a weekend. Just just lavishly a hundred thousand pounds yeah that's crazy ron that's crazy i have to ask you this question because after reading this over the weekend and and i I thoroughly enjoyed it folks i want you to go out and get the real mr big how a colombian refugee became the united kingdom's most notorious cocaine kingpin the book and some of the figures just some of the figures of how much weight was moved how much money was moved will absolutely blow your mind. But Ron, I have to ask you this question. After sitting down and talking with Jesus, after some of these numbers are just blasted into your head, and I'm sure ruminated around in your mind, how much, if if Jesus gave you this number, or if it's been tabulated in your mind one way or the other, how much money do you think Jesus made total in his career as a drug kingpin? Well, I think uh, the billion uh, pound might be a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, 
for example, I did a book on on Sergeant Smack, right? Mm-hmm. Hank Atkinson, who's very similar in the way he operated uh, to Jesus and all that. And one of the DEA reports said that uh, from an eight-year period, uh, he shipped um, uh, some like four hundred million dollars worth of uh, of heroin from from Asia to the United States. And I asked um, uh, Ike that. I said, "Did you really, did you really ship that much uh, heroin back to the U.S.?" And he goes, "No." Nah. He said, "Not even close. It was probably closer to three to five million on that." So there's always an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, one of the things is that the, the uh, authorities want to build up the people they bust, right? Yeah. Oh. And the bigger the bigger they are, it looks more serious on that sort of thing. So I, I know that, um, like I said, that one house had $14 million um, or, or pounds. Um, I think I think it, his figure is probably in the low, maybe in the low uh, hundreds of millions rather than a billion. Um you know, because he was doing it over a 10-year period uh, when he was really operating. And uh, you figure a billion pounds, that's 100 um, million pounds a year, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a, a lot of money to do that. And uh, But, uh, but you know, it, it, it's a problem. I mean, the big problem with drug trafficking is uh, not just trying to get the drugs to the, to, to the market. It's what do you do with the money you make? Right. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, and you got all, and it's, it's, it's heavy. Money is heavy, right? Right. And you're dealing with like dollar, like uh, tens and twenties and maybe hundreds, but you're dealing in millions of dollars and you're saying, well, how do you get your money back there? And, and that was a, a problem for Jesus. He used electronic, uh, uh, system, you know, for shipping money back with that, what the gyros I described earlier. And, um, and he used, uh, lorries to ship them back on boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of stuff, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a real problem for him. And I know towards the end, you mentioned that there's there's other bank accounts in other countries and things like that, and different ways to try and launder money. But you're right; there's such a volume of money. How do you? And it's heavy. And and how do you yeah. get rid of it? You know, it, yeah, and and, and you got to get it to the banks. You got to get to yeah. these secret banks that have these laws, yeah, that sort of protect you, like uh, the Cayman Islands, for example. Right. Switzerland has very lenient laws. So you have to go there. Then you got to get track of the bank accounts. Right. Yep. To find the stuff yep. when uh, uh, when you need the money on that. Then. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I think it became a point of no return. I mean, uh, he was making so much money. that didn't really matter after a while. I mean, uh, he, he like I said, he stuck in it too long. And um, when he did get out, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Yeah, in the end, pride undoes everything. It really does. Yeah. I got to ask you this question from your perspective, Ron, and that's this. Is it, uh, is it a blessing to have too much money or too little? <laughs> well, I didn't have to spend 17 years in jail, so I would say too little, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on that sort of stuff. Uh, I always said to myself, I said, you know, I said, I know enough about the trade. I said, I can operate, you know, because I've done, I've done so many books, you know, mm-hmm. I've done like seven or eight books and I've talked to so many different people. But I said, you know, you're going to get caught in the end, no matter how smart you think you are or how well you operate. Uh, like I said, law enforcement, I mean, uh, law enforcement can make all kinds of mistakes before they catch on to you. You can only make one big mistake. You know, once you make that mistake, then it's off to the races. Your days are numbered. Not only are your days numbered, but it seems like there's a there's a reputation that seems to follow you everywhere. Um, 
Before we leave people today, do you want to let people know where Jesus is now? <laughs> yeah, Jesus is back in prison <laughs> in uh, in Colombia. Uh, in in the fall, um, he uh, got arrested with with ten other guys, and he was accused of being a part of a ring. And I was told this by his lawyer. His lawyer emailed me and all that. And um, I talked with Jesus. Uh, he claimed that he was innocent, that he was set up. And um, the lawyer, uh, who's from Texas, by the way, uh, and defends a lot of big-time drug traffickers, uh, said that uh, Jesus had a, had a good case, that, that he was innocent. And so right now we're waiting for, for what's going to happen. The DA is trying to get him sent back to Texas to stand trial. And uh, he's fighting that. And uh, hopefully he's very optimistic that, uh, that everything will turn out well for him. In your heart of hearts, do you think Jesus is completely innocent, or do you think maybe he tried to get back in? Well, at first, you know, because, you know, I um, he told me, uh, I said, what are you going to do when you go back to Columbia? And uh, he told me, he says, well, I, I want to get into the coffee business. You know, I think that's a good business, right? Mm -hmm. So I ended up talking to one of the guys that busted him, one, one of the British uh, police officers that busted him. And he goes, wait a minute. He goes, wait a minute. He goes, he's getting back into trade. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, that's one of the ways to ship uh, cocaine, you know, back to uh, to England and all that. And I said, no, no. I said, he learned his uh, he learned his deals. I went back to Jesus and I said, look, I said, uh, this coffee business. I said, what, what's it about? And he goes, no, no. He says his coffee is, is not many. I'm not getting into it now. I decided I won't get into it on that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think I, I kept I've talked to him about four or five times about this. I kept warning him saying, you know, don't do something stupid. Because when I when I um, uh, was hanging around with um, Sergeant Smack, right, Ike Atkinson, who's uh, uh, you know one of the big, biggest uh, heroin dealers from Asia to the U.S., uh, all these guys would associate with him, mm -hmm. ex-criminals. And you're not supposed to associate with ex-criminals, right? And I, I warned Ike. I said, look, don't hang around with these guys. These guys want to use you. You know, they're going to get you back into the drug trade, and you're going to get caught again. I said, invariably, you'll get caught again. And he goes, yeah, yeah, and so. Uh, you know, he sort of listened to me, or at least I thought he listened to me and um, and sort of avoided them. So, yeah, there's a lot of temptation. And given his knowledge and his reputation, yeah, there's, you know, there's people that are probably have probably contacted him saying, hey, man, you're not doing too well financially. Why don't you get back in the drug trade? But but I told you, you get caught. You know, you get caught. And in this case. Um, I was suspicious at first, but I think that he's telling the truth, you know, because uh, he assured me that uh, that he had nothing to do with it. And the lawyer was also confident, too. So I think he's OK. It's kind of, Ron, like the alcoholic that wants to own the bar, though. <laughs> you know, you, you sure you're going to stay dry and you're not going to touch the product. You just want to be around the people again, yeah. you know. You, but yeah. yeah, by the way, he, he, ne he never he never used cocaine. No, I know. I'm not saying that he's. I'm not saying that's that he amazing. Was, like right. him and I, well, both him and Ike Atkinson, they never touched this stuff. They never even did marijuana. Well, you never get and, high uh, on your own supply. That's that's Ice T. He he said that in his in his yeah. lyrics. But but I'm just saying, it's just you know, sure you you you're just going to deal in coffee, but it just opens you up to that that whole world of those guys saying, hey, but you know what? Would you just store some of our product in, in yeah, your coffee right, shipments? Right. You know, right? And he said, yeah, you know, you can make a million dollars like overnight sure yeah yeah that's what i meant the temptation is strong but uh yeah. hopefully he's strong enough to uh to resist it well, let's hope so let's hope so because it, yeah. it seems like you know he's 
he was free and clear and he's been a free man and and it's let's hope he stays that way because you know yeah. life is very short and he's on the shorter side of life so i, yeah, I hope exactly. that he can enjoy that peace at the end of his yeah. life here so uh the book is so interesting folks it is such a good book the real mr big how a colombian refugee became the united kingdom's most notorious cocaine kingpin ron shepsuk has been our guest ron thank you so much for being on the program today thank you very much tim i appreciate it thank you we have a link to The Real Mr. Big, How a Colombian Refugee Became the United Kingdom's Most Notorious Cocaine Kingpin in the description of this program. Ron Shepsuk is our guest on today's program. Again, click the link in the description of this program. Get a copy of that book. It's time now for us to bring in Beer City Bruiser. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? All right, I need help. And what's the problem? I was too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time again, the time you all look forward to. It is time once again for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. And with that, we got to bring in a co-host. We bring in the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Cruiser? Very good. Boy, do we have some unusual stories. And by gosh, our, our listeners are coming through in droves. Although, I did have to teach a few of them the fine points of investigative journalism this week. Uh, don't um, just read the headlines, look more into it. <laughs> yes, because there's rich layers to this dumb crime, stupid criminals thing. Um, the fact that that there are some people who are really on their game, namely, I know some of you like to, to kind of shit all over, if you don't mind me using the language, shit all over TMZ, but sometimes they come up with some great pictures along with the stories. <laughs> I'll explain when we get to the story, Bruiser, because, oh, it is so rich. I'll have to show you the picture while we're reading the story. Okay. Because you're going you're gonna to love the picture, Bruiser. The, the picture's too much. Let's start it off today. We've got a few different stories here today. We've got, um, we've got animals robbing people. Oh, they're taking back what they want. Okay. That's right. They're taking back what should be rightfully theirs, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we've got the ultimate Florida man story today, my friend. This is the big one, huh? This is the, the big one to end all big ones. I think we can lay down our sword after this is done. <laughs> uh, we've got the ultimate Florida man story today. Um, and when I say lay down your sword in our not safe for work story today, you will have a lay down your sword, dear sir. Uh, oh, you don't want sword nudity. That's that's not good. Oh, well, <laughs> well. That's just a hint as to what, ah. what goes down. And and a man gets the ultimate put down thrown at him on New Year's. On New Year's. We'll, we'll go over that. And an old friend of yours, Bruiser, is back in the news. Really? Okay. I can't wait to see which old friend is. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. But first, let's talk about those animals who are getting their just desserts, so to speak. Although this well, is a tough one. There's a new well. Planet of the Apes movie coming up. So the animals are probably like, hey, with the new Planet of the Apes coming up, we got it. We got to uprise. That's true. And this, this this dog is starting it all out. I know the dog's not an, uh, an ape, but 
you know, this this dog probably has the right idea. A dog ate $4,000. The owners went to recover their cash in a pretty disgusting way. They said it smelled so terrible, so bad. I got to thank, again, our listeners for this story. I want to thank Tony for this. It was a golden doodle named Cecil who ate $4,000 in cash lying on a couple's kitchen counter. Why are you leaving four thousand dollars in your kitchen counter? <laughs> right, I would never do this, especially around pets, because my first thing is they're going to grab the cash and go to Chewy.com. They don't know any any, any better. They're gonna they're gonna grab the cash and then they're gonna go get treats. Oh, I, I Ziggy's jumped up and grabbed electric bills, and she's grabbed you know phone bills and and shredded them. There's no way we'd leave four thousand dollars cash on the kitchen table. No, puppies don't know any better. They don't. They just think, oh, cool, chew toy. Yeah, chew toy, exactly. So after a dog gave about $4,000 cash, the Pennsylvania-based owners resorted to recovering the money in a pretty disgusting way. Of course, they're not going to settle for letting $4,000 go down the gullet. (laughs) Time to follow Cecil around with the net. (laughs) That's right. The Guardian reports that Cecil, a seven-year-old golden doodle, ate a bunch of $50-$100 bills put on the kitchen counter in the Pittsburgh home of Clayton and Carrie Law. Are they drug dealers? Why do they have $50-$100 bills sitting on their counter? I have no idea. The only time I've ever had cash like that on me is after a wrestling show because the promoters pay you cash. Yeah, yeah. But literally the next day, it's in the bank. Right. So let's find this out. The money withdrawn from the couple's savings account was earmarked for a fence installation that was meant to be stashed away. Again, there's better ways to pay. Yeah, you don't you don't have to pay cash. <laughs> Unless this guy meant to be or wanted to be paid that way. Expressing your disbelief, duh. Carrie Law told the Pittsburgh City paper, this dog, I swear to God, has never touched anything in his life. As far as you know. Exactly. Right? Exactly. However, last month that all changed. She said, suddenly Clayton yelled to me, Cecil is eating $4,000. I thought, I cannot be hearing that. I almost had a heart attack. The couple discovered chewed up bills scattered throughout their home, though they were able to recover about $1,500 of it. That was less than half the sum that they'd withdrawn. Well, Cecil was hungry. Yeah. Cecil was like, hey. Good, an expensive dinner. <laughs> that's right. They won't bring me filet mignon. I'll take the money. That's that's what I'll do there. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> right? Right? Uh, the laws called the veterinarian to see if Cecil should be checked should be checked out after eating the stack of cash, but were reassured that given the dog's size, at home monitoring would suffice. Oh, that's the worst. At home monitoring is the worst. I'm sure they just wanted their money back. Yeah. Yeah. The next challenge was working out what to do about the missing money. Carrie Law said she called the bank where the manager said similar incidents had happened in the past and that they would take back taped together bills with visible serial numbers. (laughs) What about covered in something? (laughs) (laughs) Cecil later threw up some of the ingested money, which the couple started to piece together. But the laws also had to retrieve cash from the dog's other end. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. They had a video that they shared on Instagram. I'll leave it to you guys to go out there and find it, which shows Clayton Law collecting poop from the garden before washing it out in the sink. <laughs> she told the city paper, there we are at the utility sink, washing the shitty money, yelling, yay, yes, we got one. It smelled so bad. 
<laughs> Wait till you take it to the bank. And the teller goes, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that, you, you take that back where you brought it from. Carrie Lawless will told the Post, I never thought I'd be able to say I've laundered money, but this is apparently a first time for everything. So there That's a shitty way to get money. Yes, it is. <laughs> there is a video out there you can watch. Uh, Tony pulled this from Yahoo News. I'm sure if you just pulled out uh, $4,000 in a disgusting way, you'll get either the dog or something else. So there you go. <laughs> Speaking of um, disgusting ways to get money. Okay. Here's another disgusting way to get money. Bruiser. A missing $300 from a dead person's wallet gets a mortuary worker arrested. Oh, he stole from the dead. Okay. Now, first of all, why is there money in a dead guy's wallet? Maybe he wanted to be buried with it. Would you do that? No, I wouldn't. But maybe this was his lucky 300 or something. I don't know. I don't know. 36-year-old mortuary worker is accused of stealing $300 from a dead person's wallet in Oregon. The person was found dead during a welfare check at about 12.30 a.m. Oh, they found it on scene. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. At about 12.30 a.m. on December 30th at their home in Lakeside, according to the Coos County Sheriff's Office, a deputy called a mortuary and removed some items, including money from the person's home for safekeeping until their family could retrieve them. However, the deputy later realized $300 was missing from the person's wallet when he was processing their belongings. Authorities began investigating and learned the mortuary worker took the money from the wallet the man returned two hundred dollars of the money but told the deputies he'd already given a hundred dollars to a friend he was arrested <laughs> <laughs> how nice of him what a nice guy yeah to give somebody else's money away nobody knew that that friend was a hooker but okay let's keep yeah going. yeah <laughs> well that, that friend of mine returned services and in in, in, re, in return for the hundred uh he was arrested on charges of burglary and theft lakeside is about 100 miles south of eugene if you're wondering so there you go you meant to know when i die don't have anything in my pockets <laughs> that's right yeah because they're probably going through them uh, you yeah. never know and mrs bruiser might go through them first but that's true but somebody else may go through them as well or Ziggy and Talia could just eat me. Or eat the money. <laughs> That's right. They could eat the money. That's right. Yeah. Just make sure it's available in their bowl. That's all I'm saying. There you go. <laughs> I'll give myself one of these again. There you go. Um, another another uh, theft out there, if you will, Bruiser. We're starting we it off. a lot with... of theft stories for a cashless society that we're becoming. I know, right? Yeah. This is the third one now that we have with money. We're starting <laughs> out with thefts today. Okay. There's a couple, okay. There's a couple of lawsuits on the docket today too. So. Ooh. Okay. We've made it official. It's a docket now. <laughs> <laughs> a man in Rome, Georgia, steals fake jewelry and gives it to his girlfriend as a gift. Do you think you'd ever get away with that with Mrs. Bruiser? By the way. No, but I love watching the uh, those pawn shows like Hardcore Pawn or Pawn Stars where yes. a girl comes in and she wants to pawn her jewelry and the guy's like, no, 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 baby, you got to keep it. You got to keep it. She's like, no, we need the money. You, you spent so much. And then the pawn jeweler's like, yeah, this is fake. Yeah, yeah, it never works out. 46-year-old Toby Ray Norton. Sounds like he buys that fake stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, it's fake jewelry, totally. Yeah. Was arrested this week after reports said he stole two costume jewelry rings and then gave them to his girlfriend as a gift. Reports said that the victim discovered who took the rings when he saw the suspect's girlfriend wearing them. The theft occurred back on November 21st at a home on Westover Drive. 
uh, Norton is charged with theft by taking as opposed by theft by giving. <laughs> which is a whole different, different deal. Thanks to one of our listeners for sending that along. I think that Hootie, was that was Hootie Tom. Rob, an eighty-year-old woman, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was Tom who sent that along. By the way, um, moving along, a man was killed while attempting to submerge a stolen car in a lake. <laughs> this is okay. I'm interested in this story. But let's see the thought process of this gentleman, shall we? <laughs> right. There's there's clever and not so clever, and this man yeah. falls within the not so clever realm of things. Uh, we go to Texas, where a Texas man has died after attempting to submerge a stolen vehicle in a lake. He was just 18 years old, Bruiser, and that may that may explain some things. Yep, young idiot. Yeah. 18 year old Keith Johnson of Aubrey was pronounced dead from injuries sustained in the incident at a Denton area hospital on Tuesday, December 19th of last year. The Little Elm Police Department wrote in an update shared on its Facebook account on Tuesday. Responding officers located Johnson after receiving a report of a single car motor vehicle accident at Doe Branch Park in South Paloma Creek on December 18th that morning. Our investigation has received that the vehicle involved in the incident was stolen out of Denton County. The vehicle's occupant, 18-year-old Keith Johnson of Aubrey, was attempting to submerge it in Louisville, Louisville Lake, or it could be Louisville Lake. I'm just so used to saying Louisville and having to defend myself. It's not. It's Louisville. It's L-E-W-I-S-ville. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. There we go. Louisville Lake. <laughs> Uh, and was struck by the vehicle in the process. He was struck by the vehicle in the process. Oh, oh, okay, I get it. Uh, Johnson sustained serious injuries as a result of the impact and was transported to the hospital. He succumbed to his injuries early on Monday, December 18th. The department said it found the vehicle partially submerged and that Johnson was transported to the Denton Area Hospital in its initial report shared on Facebook. An investigation into the incident is ongoing, however. to uh, No additional details were immediately made available at the time of the update. It sounds like the car so it, was yeah. submerged as just part of the fact that he got run over. I was going to say, he got run over by the car he was stealing. Yes, yeah. So he had gotten out at some point and it was on a hill. Mm-hmm. And it <laughs> this is, makes it even better. <laughs> Boy, this kid knew nothing, didn't he? No. <laughs> so you turn your wheels towards the curb, son. Come on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was... Uh... Boy, oh boy, I'll tell you. You know, there's a bonus story here that almost looks just as good. Okay. Authorities in Georgia are looking for a woman who posed as a Waffle House employee so she could steal money from the cash register. Oh, don't be stealing from the Waffle House. Come on, lady. This uh, this happened back on December 12th. Uh, the woman walked into a Waffle House in Riverdale on December 12th and began working. She just began working. <laughs> after, after two hours on the job, the woman grabbed an undisclosed amount of cash from the register and left. Officials released a photo taken from surveillance camera footage showing the woman wearing the trademark Waffle House hat. I guess that's all you need. Wait, she worked for two hours? Yeah. <laughs> like, so that's just her pay. That's all yeah. it was. Yeah. It's unclear why none of the employees realized she was posing as an employee. Like, like they could have said, uh, she doesn't work here. 
(laughs) When did you get hired? (laughs) Right. Uh, The manager of the restaurant told Fox Business that she was not there when the unidentified woman showed up to work. So the manager wasn't at work yet. Okay. (laughs) A Waffle House spokesperson told the news outlet that they are cooperating with law enforcement's investigation into the theft. Uh, Here's a picture of the suspect. I would think you would know she doesn't work. Oh, yeah. I love how the hat's on top of the hairnet. Well, and she's got a blue wig on. Yeah. Literally a blue wig on, a royal blue wig. Yeah, and that hat does not fit her head at all. No, no, no. You would you would think okay, uh, uh, yeah, and and she looks homeless too. Yeah, she does. She she doesn't, and she's she's wearing this really loose yellow sweatshirt. It, yeah, it, that's not that's not the dress code for. for no, the only house. Waffle House thing she has is the hat. <laughs> yeah. Is that that's all I need to go behind the counter at Waffle House is a hat? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So. So I, it, I, too, I've been to my waffles too much where the girls know me. So right, yeah, you just but they probably let me anyways because we have a good time. Probably just jump behind the counter, start working one day. Yeah, yeah, save, <laughs> I will. Save a lot of work for a meal. I, I think that should be a program at Waffle House. Work off your tab. <laughs> just, yeah, but two hours. I mean, it's so cheap to eat at Waffle House. How long do you have to work? Uh, probably half hour. 15, exactly. <laughs> 15 minutes, maybe. It depends on what you get. You know, if you're, if you're in there for a cheap breakfast, an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I just like to be the person that yells at the cook. Oh, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Give me some hash browns, cap stacked, <laughs> and all that other crap. <laughs> <laughs> so you, no cap and stacks. That's what I get. <laughs> you'd like to be a server. Is what yeah. Saying. Yeah. I wouldn't like to. No, I'm just saying I, I wouldn't mind just yelling at the cooks what to put on. You know, put you on just, the grill. You just want to confuse them. You want to stand there and yell at them and confuse them. Yeah, I just want to yell at them what goes in the hash browns. <laughs> just, I want ice cream on my hash browns. Ice cream and strawberries. <laughs> stat. I don't know what the stat does, but. Well, I'd like to throw the, the waffle batter into the waffle iron, too. Because you notice they don't pour it. That was just throw it in there. Yeah. Like a big ladle full. They just yeah. sling it like, I don't know, like it's radioactive or something. Like it's baby batter. Just whoa, hey, whoa, <laughs> whoa! From the windows to the wall, <laughs> and that baby batter. I don't know. Mm, mm. I'll never go to Waffle House again. <laughs> At least don't eat a waffle. Baby batter, fried baby batter waffles. That should be on the menu. <laughs> that sounds to me like a lawsuit, my friend. Speaking of lawsuits, we're in the lawsuit portion now of our. Uh, of our program. Let's see. What's who, who's suing who? Well, long we're going to Long Island where it is cop against cop. Oh, okay. Here we go. We're getting nitty gritty. Well, I don't know about nitty gritty, but evidently a good shave is in question. Here. <laughs> okay. Uh, long Island cop claims he's discriminated against because he can't shave. Why can't he shave? Come on, man. Just shave. It's easy. It's not hard. Well, there's a condition involved. Ah, okay. Yeah. Here's the deal with this thing. Veteran officer Jeffrey Toscano says a skin condition is preventing him from shaving his beard, resulting in a hairy situation with his boss. Get it? It's a pun. Uh, Who allegedly discriminated against him because of his scruff. He says that in court papers. The 52-year-old Toscano, uh, who joined the Nassau County 
Police Department in 2005 was diagnosed 15 years ago with angular chelitis, which is a condition usually caused by a fungal infection that results in itching, burning, pain, and skin fissures when he shaves. Ooh. Ouch. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Toscano won a medical exception to the department's policy banning facial hair, permitting him to maintain a beard one-eighth of an inch long. And they measure that shit, believe me. You oh, yeah, in. yeah. Yeah, they Papa cool. Bruiser was a correctional officer, and they measured everything. Yeah. And said he's performed his job without issue until his commanding officer began to make disparaging comments. In November of 2021, his accommodation was taken away, and he filed a complaint with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Office. It got that serious. His supervisor would allegedly say things like, what's on your face? Oh, that's, that's mature. I would have responded with, your wife. <laughs> See? That was very well in flowers and madam of me. <laughs> Toscano also claims he was denied a, a tour change, transferred away from his partner, and put on desk duty because he had a he had a oh, beard. He has a beard. Yeah. That's a shame. I don't know. The alleged discrimination lasted until at least May when Toscano claims he was the only officer in squad not called to execute a search warrant while other cops collected overtime to respond, according to the legal filing. Toscano is seeking unspecified damages. How much, Bruiser, do you think he gets for not being able to keep his beard? Oh, gosh. Let's say five grand. Five grand? Yeah. Not, not a big award there? I don't think it's huge. That's, well, that's you know what? No, it'll said. probably be because he's on he's on desk duty now. Mm-hmm. And so they'll probably give him back pay because I don't know if they get paid more for being on tour or desk. Yeah. So maybe they'll figure out, okay, you worked X amount of days on desk when you're supposed to be on tour, so you're owed this much money. Yeah, sure. Probably just back pay. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the two stories that got the most... I would say most submitted over the week. Uh, okay. The very popular story, Bruiser. Everybody loves an exploding toilet. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> we go to Florida where a Florida man filed a lawsuit after a toilet explosion at Dunkin' Donuts, or now it's just Dunkin'. They don't call it Dunkin' Donuts anymore. Allegedly caused severe and long-term injuries. First of all, Does, Bruiser, ever had a toilet explode on you? <laughs> as opposed to made, you, I've made toilets explode. I was going to say, as, as opposed to you exploding on the toilet. Yeah, I the visual I get when I when I saw this news story was a guy going finishes his coffee, sets it down, tells his spouse, oh, "I'm gonna go take a leak. I'll be back." Okay, gets in the bathroom, pulls out Willie into his hand, <laughs> starts whistling, you know. Downtown Abbey or whatever. And Downtown the, Abbey. And the next thing you know is, boom, it explodes. And nothing but fecal matter and sewage <gasps> just goes oh, all the way up on him. And he just literally spits out a little bit and goes, what the fuck? <laughs> well, let's get to the story so people know what it is we're talking about. Like in my head, that's what I want to happen. <laughs> and he just comes out of the bathroom and just... <laughs> Look what happened in there. Let's figure out how much that's worth. An alleged toilet explosion at a Dunkin' in Florida is at the center of a new lawsuit 
Per a report from USA Today, Duncan initially declined to comment, of course they did, on the case due to the fecal fulmination, which, by the way, I think is the name of our new band, Fecal Fulmination, Yes, uh, taking place at a franchise store. The plaintiff, Paul Kerouac, alleges that he was in the men's room at the Winter Park establishment in January of 2022. Do you think he was down there to see a Twins minor league game? <laughs> yes, I think he was. Okay. Uh, when the toilet exploded, just as Bruiser said, thus leaving him with severe and long-term injuries. Furthermore, Kerouac says he was covered in human feces and urine as a result of the blow-up. When Kerouac informed workers of what had happened, they allegedly told him they were already aware of the issue, citing other incidents of a presumably similar nature. It happened before. <laughs> but before, it was just a bunch of bubbles coming back. It wasn't actually exploding. It was just someone's butt got a little wet. <laughs> now, okay, I want to ask you here, Bruiser, what do you think the figure in this lawsuit is? Oh, it's got to be huge because it includes uh, fecal matter. So I think it's got to be huge. He's got to be going for a million dollars. Okay. Hold that figure in your in your mind, my friend, and be prepared to shit yourself yourself. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. The suit argues negligence and calls for more than fifty thousand dollars in damages. That's it. <laughs> yes. I'm going for a million. Cool mill. As well as a jury trial. So <laughs> to prove it exploded in his face. <laughs> evidently, the guy likes PP play. I guess. <laughs> and in the face. He loves it in the face. According to publicly available court docs, Kerouac suffers continuing trauma due to the exploding toilet <laughs> and has sought out mental health treatment. Now, I don't mean to laugh, folks, but if it was that traumatic, is $50,000 really all he should go for? I'm telling you, cool mill. A cool mill. He can never... Poop in public again. I would think fifty. I would think a mill is where you start. Yeah, that's where you start, and that's not including your 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 therapist bills, whatever medical bills, the cleanup right. bill. You know what I mean? Like all right. that. The publication complex has reached out to Kerouac's lawyer and a Duncan rep for comment. The story hasn't been updated as of yet. In October of last year, a 70, 70 year old woman won a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the Duncan franchise located in Georgia after allegedly sustaining serious burns from spilled coffee. Just burns from spilled coffee. Multi-million dollar lawsuit bruiser. Yeah. This, this was an exploding toilet. Matter. Right. <laughs> and keep in mind, I mean... The coffee's a lot like fecal matter. So, I mean, you're going <laughs> to... This should be worth at least 10 million bucks. Yeah, he should own a part of Duncan by the end of this. You would think. Yeah. I would. I would. This is multi, like I this guy needs to follow that old lady's suit. Multi-million dollars. Oh. He can never put think about it, he can never go to the bathroom and get in public. No. Ever. No. You know, can you imagine if he just hears a, a gurgling in a toilet? He's gonna run to the hills. <laughs> <laughs> He's in a public stall. Someone flushes before he's ready. He's out of there. He just hears Iron Maiden in the background when he hears a gurgle. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Um, that's for all you Iron Maiden fans out there. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I I, I wouldn't be able to go in, in public anymore. I wouldn't even could trust you, my own plumbing at home. If you were his spouse, could you kiss him again? No. <laughs> Your sex life's ruined, isn't it? You couldn't go near him. <laughs> no. You'd just call him doo-doo daddy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Hey, poo poo platter, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just, uh, yeah, yeah, just. Uh, what a shitty day. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, you just can't, you know. Oh, no. I, this guy's, why? I want, he, he's too humble. 50 grand is too, too little. It is too doesn't bad. even cover your court costs, man. Come on. No, right? And what lawyer's going to take that and, and be like, Really? 50 grand is what you swung for here? I mean, because the lawyer gets what? 10, 10%? 20%? 10, 10 to 20%, yeah. Okay, and 10,000? 10, really? Yeah. For that deal? Yeah, he's not doing that. Mm -mm. No. No. Let's move on. Uh, old friend of yours is back in the news. Oh, okay. And it didn't take too long. <laughs> Who's my old friend? Your old friend, your old pal, your old buddy, Miracle Rivera's back in the news. Okay. Do you remember Miracle? <laughs> I remember Miracle. The one you said is dancing on the pole? <laughs> yep. Down there in Florida? Oh, yeah. Our Christmas tree attacker has now been busted for a vase assault. <laughs> Evidently, the boyfriend was acting up again, and uh, Miracle had to put him back in. This boyfriend's got to find a new girlfriend. <laughs> I think so. I think it's time for him to move. Go to Cinnamon or Charity or something. Get away from Miracle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Come on, Bruiser. I'm sure she's a fine woman who's just got a hell of a right hook. Sure. <laughs> right. Uh, days after allegedly beating her boyfriend with a Christmas tree, a Florida woman hit the same victim in the face with a glass face. Ooh, now she's upped her game. Oh, yeah, that, that hurts even more. And she picked another holiday, New Year's Day, to do it. <laughs> His um, boyfriend just needs to not celebrate holidays with his stripper girlfriend. Let her go work the club. Although I will give her credit, she got a better mug shot this time. Oh, yeah. Yep. She looks much better. She does. She looks like she's ready to go to the club. Oh, God. Come on, Bruiser. Come on. <laughs> 20-year-old Miracle Rivera was arrested and charged with battering the victim inside the Largo residence that the couple shares. He, he hasn't learned to not go home after these things. Uh, the January 1st attack, cops say, occurred during an argument between Rivera and her 24-year-old boyfriend. If you don't remember, the boyfriend's a little bit older than she is, although he doesn't act like it. No. I'll give myself one of these. Thank you. Uh, the glass flower vase. Uh, did you see the picture of the vase, by the way? No. No, I just saw uh, the picture of her. Here's the vase. It's pretty big. Oh, those hurt. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Those are thicker than you think. That's one of those jumbo ones that you put two dozen in? Yeah. Those are, <clears> the, those are the ones that are usually like when you walk into a, a house being shown, they're sitting right in the middle of the foyer. Yeah. With, with, like you said, two dozen flowers in it. Or in this guy's case, two dozen gas station roses. <laughs> uh, which you picked up on the way home to say, I'm sorry. You know what was not in there? What's that? The Christmas tree. That's <laughs> right. Because <Christmas> <laughs> she beat, beat the shit out of him with the Christmas tree. The January 1st attack occurred during an argument between Rivera and her 24-year-old boyfriend. The glass flower vase strike left the man with visible injuries to his face. So she, she hit it dead on. Yeah, she smashed it right into his face. She's got good aim. Yeah. 
Uh, Rivera was charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, a felony for the, oh my God. What time do you think she did this at? 12.15. A.M. or P.M.? The, like right after the new year. New year hits at midnight, so 12.15 a.m. Oh, no. Miracle evidently was off of her shift and at home. It was 6.45 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he was just sneaking back in at yeah. 6.45 a.m.? Oh, God, yeah. That yeah, might have been. He's like, she's still at the club. I can get in. And he walks to the door. Oh, shit. Miracle. Hi. Hi. Hi, honey. Uh, I wonder if the argument was about taking the Christmas tree down. It might have been. <laughs> you just never know. Uh, she was also hit with a misdemeanor domestic battery count for allegedly scratching the victim on the face and abdomen earlier that morning. Oh, he'd, he'd been in residence for a little while. Yeah. Hmm. Rivera is locked up in the county jail without bond because one time is cute, two times mm, is a pattern. You're nuts. Yeah. yeah. And is scheduled for an initial court appearance. Following her December 24th bust for the tree attack, Rivera was freed from jail on Christmas Day on her own recognizance. As part of her release terms, Rivera was ordered by a judge to have no illegal contact with the victim. I guess this was she, very illegal. <laughs> I guess she blew that one out of the water, didn't she? Um, with whom she's lived with for the past two years. Rivera was charged with domestic battery for the 3.40 a.m. tree battery. Oh, so she moved it up three hours for the vase. <laughs> so that's She good. let him get a little bit of sleep. Yeah. Which reportedly left her boyfriend with numerous minor scratches over much of his upper body and arms. As part of the jail intake process, correction officers inventoried Rivera's collection of tattoos, one of which reads, What bruiser? What does it read? Think positive. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that. Oh, yeah. So she's Miracle, thinking positive, all right. Miracle's thinking positive when she's in the Who Scout. So I, I got to applaud her for that. You go, girl. I can't wait to see what they do for Valentine's. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's going to end up dead for Valentine's pretty much. <laughs> yes, he is. I can't see him living through it, but uh, I think for Valentine's, he had to get himself his own place. Yeah, I think he needs to just, like I said, go date Cinnamon or <laughs> one of the other ones. Cinnamon, Rainbow. Destiny. Destiny. One of Shaniqua. the other, Shaniqua, one of the other girls at the club. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did did we talk about the woman who beat her father over his oxygen machine? No. No? <laughs> no we didn't. I would have remembered that. <laughs> oh, good God. Of course, it's in Florida. Of course. Uh, an interesting story popped up. Across my desk, I figured I'd report on it. A woman struck her 73-year-old father over the beeping sound made by his oxygen machine. Oh. Happy New Year. <laughs> you don't need to breathe. <laughs> yeah, what's what's a little breathing between relatives? I'm just saying. A woman, oh, come on, Dad, hold your breath for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, could you just stop breathing for a bit? I'd, that incessant beeping is driving me nuts. A woman punched her father in the head during an argument on Christmas morning about the beeping sound made by the 73-year-old victim's oxygen machine. Oh, good God. <laughs> According to an arrest affidavit, 49-year-old Christina Granados, who should know better, 
admitted striking her parent when questioned by cops who responded around 5 a.m. to the Lady Lake, Florida home that Granado shares with her father. Do these people not sleep? I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe a sleeping pill is in order. Yes. Just, yeah. The victim told officers that he argued with his daughter about the oxygen machine making a beeping noise before Granados punched him in the left side of his head. Merry Christmas on December 25th. <laughs> you know, that beeping noise is there for a reason, because when it goes away, dad's in trouble. <laughs> Granados, cops reported. Uh, said the pair quarreled over his oxygen machine and due to the way her father was speaking to her. Oh, Jesus. I mean, literally, it's Christmas. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> can, <laughs> can you get in here and help? Uh, at first reported by Villages News, Granados was arrested for battery on a person over 65, which is a felony. She spent Christmas in the county jail from which she was released the following afternoon upon posting a $1,000 bond. That was it. A $1,000 bond for elder abuse that is terrible isn't it it should be a lot more granados is scheduled for a january 22nd arraignment and she's been ordered by a judge to have no contact with her father by the way this is the sweet little girl in oh. uh, yeah oh my goodness yeah doesn't she look like someone you'd probably take on in the ring she she, <laughs> she looks like one of those ogres in lord of the Rings. <laughs> like right when they come out of the earth yeah yeah She's a beauty. She's uh yeah. She she's her father's daughter, that's for sure. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I wouldn't have gone that far, but okay. Now, the ultimate, ultimate Florida man story. I promised it earlier. We have it here today, ladies and gentlemen. I'm gonna start our not safe for work segment early. Okay. Because this is so outrageous. So out there, I think that you probably need parental discretion. Oh, okay. Okay. So if you've got kids around the, the listening device, put them away, put them in a closet, put them in a cage, whatever you do with them. I'm sure you're, if you're listening in Florida, that's what you're doing with them. Uh, if you're at work, uh, put in earbuds or turn the listening device down so the boss can't hear it, the coworkers can't hear it. And we'll go in five, four, three, two, and here we go. A Florida man is accused of a hot tub party murder and wants out of jail, says his key witnesses were unreliable because they were drunk high on ketamine and cocaine. <laughs> That's a party. <laughs> That's a party. One of the party goers, Bruiser, originally told police she was high and not paying attention during the shooting. <laughs> I was just, I was chilling out. I was enjoying the bubbles. I heard fireworks. Turn around. Guy's dead. Don't know what happened. Wasn't paying attention. Is this Florida or what? This is so Florida. A Florida man who was charged with murder after allegedly shooting a guest at his drug-filled hot tub party last year now wants to be released from jail. With his attorneys claiming that one of the key witnesses originally told police she was high and not paying attention. <laughs> Welcome to the party. Over on the table, we have our ketamine, we have our cocaine, beers in the cooler. <laughs> on top of it, the man's old enough to know better. He's 45 years old. Oh, geez. And his name is Mark Anderson. He's accused of killing a man who is definitely too old to be at the party, 58-year-old Albert Commence. What? 
What is a 58-year-old doing at a ketamine and cocaine-fueled party? And a hot tub party at that. Do you want to see a 58-year-old shriveled balls in your hot tub? No. Exactly. No, I don't. Okay, so 58-year-old Albert commences at the hot tub party in Delray Beach, Florida, back in September. A probable cause affidavit viewed by the Sun Sentinel says commence arrived at Anderson's timeshare apartment. Very Florida. timeshare. Okay. Mm -hmm. At the invitation of the suspect's two other guests, Susan Schneider and Jack Feinberg, a married couple. Oh, it's getting Florida. Oh, there's a key party. Okay. Yeah. Schneider told police uh, the couple had met up with Anderson while frequenting two Boca Raton bars that night, the Funky Biscuit and Fat Cats. I'll give that one a moment to breathe because nothing breathed that night. Just saying. <laughs> we met this guy at the Funky Biscuit, not the fat cat. Well, he was there, too. Yeah, we, we kind of bar hopped that night. The Sun Sentinel reported Schneider told police that the couple knew commence through Grateful Dead cover band Crazy Fingers, <laughs> who had played earlier at the Funky Biscuit. Prior to that night, Anderson and commence had never met. No, oh, geez. Perfect to shoot him then, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. Why not? Yeah. It's better to shoot a perfect stranger than someone you know. Of course. That's, that's what you use your flower bases and Christmas trees for. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what they make those for. Uh, when the group was getting ready to get into the hot tub, Anderson went into his bedroom to retrieve a towel. Because, you know, always have a towel. That's what they say on South Park. Uh, but he allegedly came back with a gun, pointed it at commence, and shot. <laughs> there's no logic that in that turn. that there's no logic in that sentence bruiser that took such a horrible turn it did didn't it yes. that's like one of those choose your own adventure deals <laughs> can you imagine the decision he had he's looking at the bed there's his towel there's his gun huh which one do i dry myself with <laughs> i'll try this one <laughs> which one do i dry myself with well, the towel would get me extra dry and the gun would get me extra arrested. I guess I go with the gun. But Commence kept talking and moving around after he was shot. How dare he? <laughs> Schneider called 911 about 45 minutes after he had been shot, according to the affidavit. It'll what was he doing for 45 minutes? <laughs> Flailing and trying to swim in the hot tub? I don't know. Can you believe that guy just shot me? <laughs> Like the nerve. Wow. Can I get a ride? Can somebody call me an Uber? You know, I'm bleeding out here. <laughs> Commence also told his friends that he had been feeling okay and wanted to spend the night at their house. The guy who got shot. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm okay. Just a small balloon. <laughs> when the trio got to their house, Commence became pale white and was complaining of chest pain. Yeah, gee, I wonder why he was shot. <laughs> <laughs> When first responders arrived at their home, they saw that he had a gunshot wound to the chest. He was immediately transported to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Police officers found a gun at Anderson's home along with what appeared to be a blood stain on the balcony wall. I guess it probably went through him. <laughs> Do you think he went, oh, hey, the mosquitoes out here. They are biting. <laughs> <laughs> Anderson was arrested the next day on a first-degree murder charge and has since been held in the Palm Beach County Jail. His attorneys are now trying to get the judge to set a bond hearing to release him from jail, citing shaky and unreliable testimony from witnesses. <laughs> well, yeah. 
<laughs> I I want to know what his reasoning was. Why did you shoot him? Oh, we're we're getting to that. Oh, okay, so okay, yeah, yeah, let's get there. Feinberg told officers with the Delray Beach Police Department that he had poor memory recollection, according to a defense motion and affidavit viewed by the Sun Sentinel. And Schneider told police that she was high and not paying attention when Commence had been shot. Feinberg did say he heard an explosive sound, and Schneider said she saw Anderson allegedly point a black object at Commence. It appears that all were drinking alcohol, using cocaine, ingesting ketamine, and smoking pot. There is a full party tray there, Bruiser, and all oh, were yeah. partaking. We call that the 80s. Yeah. Anderson's next scheduled court date is a status check in early February. So He still didn't give a reason why. I'm curious why. Did he just mistake his gun for his towel or what? I guess so. He meant to hand him the <laughs> towel and went bang, bang. Oh, shit. <laughs> My bad. By the way, this is what this... Uh, this is what this guy looks like. Remind you of anybody? Uh, oh, my goodness. Doesn't he look, oh, yeah. Doesn't he look a little Manson-like? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say, like that, when you mention all the drugs, that's what I picture. Yep. So there you go. The ultimate Florida man story. <laughs> I don't think... It had it all. Women, drugs, alcohol, guns, a towel. A towel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't forget your towel. Um, yeah. So there you go. That that was uh, that was it, man. That was it. Uh, Do you think when the guy got shot, he pulled a Forrest Gump? Something bit me. <laughs> <laughs> Probably something bit me. I don't feel so good. <laughs> this next story, Bruiser, was sent to me by Robert. Okay. Thank you, Robert. Robert uh, said, I think Bruiser is going to be a little surprised by his co-host. <laughs> because here in Chillicothe, we discovered that there's a sex offender here that was charged with failure to register as a sex offender. And he'll be okay. surprised by the person who was charged with failure to register as a sex offender. Okay. It's a Mercer County man. He's a rural Princeton man, actually. He's in jail. He's been charged with a felony for failure to register as a sex offender. He was charged on Wednesday. His name is Timothy Dennis. Hey. Hello, now. <laughs> there, uh, something you need to talk there to me about their cruiser? Is everything okay? Everything's fine on my end. <laughs> Here's the discrepancy. This man... <laughs> This man is 70 years old, and his name is Timothy J. Dennis. Ah, uh, okay. Not my name. <laughs> I got to thank Robert for sending that in. <laughs> He's like, yeah. He uh, hit me up online. He goes, hey, you know what? We got a guy named Timothy Dennis. Actually, he goes by Timmy Dennis. And then uh, he uh, he's failing to register as a sex offender down here in Chillicothe. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? And he goes, no, seriously. He goes, send me this story. Yeah, well, we know where your doppelganger is. I right, <laughs> except for he's a he's a nasty, nasty boy. Yeah, he took all your bad qualities. Yeah, this guy's being accused of being a Mercer County resident that knowingly failed to register as a sex offender after moving from the state of Oregon. I've never, never been. Uh, the Mercer County Prosecuting Attorney's Office noted that. 70-year-old Timothy J. Dennis, let's make sure we make this clear, noted 
or the, the prosecuting attorney's office noted that 70-year-old Timothy J. Dennis had been found guilty while in Oregon in regards to lewd and lascivious acts in the presence of a child under the age of 16. There's no way in hell I'd ever do that. <laughs> uh, no bond has been set in the Mercer County case. So there you go. This has um, happened to me before when I went to go renew my driver's license. Mm-hmm. The lady runs my name through the whatever system that is they have, and she looks up and goes, you ever had a license in Ohio? And I said, no, ma'am. She said, are you sure? I said, the only place I've lived are Wisconsin and, and uh, Missouri. No, no, Ohio. She goes, okay, well, there's a man with your name, full name, wanted for murder in Ohio. Whoa. <laughs> and the only reason that they knew it wasn't me is social security numbers were different. But she was like, you know. Like, I, literally as we're walking, my wife goes, you're lucky you said you never had an Ohio license. I go, why? She goes, they would have called the cops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they would have investigated it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're lucky this man is in prison because otherwise <laughs> they're yeah. coming after the cruiser. That's right. Uh, like I said, I want to thank Robert for the story. Also want to uh, have you guys send out some prayers for Robert. Again, he's in Chillicothe, Ohio. Um, having surgery towards the end of the month, and it's a it's a big one. So make sure you send that healing energy out to Robert. So there you go. All right. The second story that uh, got, uh, got submitted the most this week, okay? okay. And here is, <laughs> here is the picture bruiser. Oh, this is where you asked me off air, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Don't, don't. That is the greatest picture right. ever. Don't spoil it. Here we are. Okay. I won't. But but that that right there. And if he, I was going to do what this guy did, and he had it hanging That's out. the picture I would take. Right. <laughs> a man performs a naked cannonball into the Bass Pro Pond in Alabama. Now remember, we had this story where a guy went fishing in a Bass Pro Pond yeah. in Florida. <laughs> right? This guy took it one step further. Now, a bunch of you sent me this story and said, hey, did you see this? Well, yeah, not only did I see it, but TMZ had pictures and video. <laughs> the pictures. Oh, you have to post the picture. There's <laughs> actually so video. Good. Here's the video of the guy waiting in the pond, waiting for the cops. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that something? He's just enjoying him. He's like a big bear playing in water. He is just letting his donger flap in the water. Here's the yep. deal, folks. Look, and I love how he's letting everyone see his dong, too. Yep. Like, he is yep. not turning around at all. It's on full display. Here's yeah. the deal, folks. If you decide you want to take a leisurely swim in the Bass Pro Shops pond. Oh, he fell out. Did you see the end of that? Yes, yes. Now, we're going to re report on it. We're going to report on it. He, I'm not going to show you the end because it's too rich. Okay. The okay. video is too rich because the cops are right there. Okay. Now you talk about fishing for attention. Some guys in serious trouble after stripping naked and jumping into a Bass Pro Shops pond. Keep in mind, it's all on video. All right. Yeah, yeah, it's all the cameras everywhere. Right. And footage from horrified bystanders has captured everything. You got to see it to believe it. The man executes a cannonball from the top floor of the store in Leeds, Alabama last Thursday. So first of all, cannonballs into the water naked. <laughs> from the top. Too. From the top. <laughs> Cops say the guy, 42-year-old George Owens, performed the stunt just before closing time. Because that's the time to do it, right? Well, yeah, 
Yeah, why not? The video shows Owens yelling something to officers as he shamelessly hangs on the edge, legs spread wide apart and all, before <laughs> dramatically hurling himself over the side and onto the wet cement floor, smacking his head and ass in the process. Yeah, it looked like it hurt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cops get Owens into cuffs, although he continues to put up a fight. This is the other part of the video you haven't seen yet. However, he eventually calms down. At one point, another man covers him with a blanket to spare bystanders the naked sight, and police slide him away on his belly <laughs> like a beach seal. It's, yep. <laughs> it's hysterical. As for what led up to the erratic fish tank display, Police Chief Paul Irwin tells TMZ Owens was driving a car with two family members around 9 p.m. when he hit a pole in the store's parking lot. Okay. Yes, there's more Still to this. Still doesn't justify going in and getting naked and jumping in, but okay. From there, he decided to get out, strip naked, and walk inside the wilderness-themed store. Chief Irwin tells us that once he was under arrest, Owens kicked one officer in the groin. Yes, he did and later kicked in and damaged the back door of their police vehicle. He's being charged with a hodgepodge of offenses, including criminal mischief and assault on a police officer. He also made vulgar comments to the officers. He was taken to a hospital for psychiatric evaluation. Oh, I'd check him for a concussion. <laughs> now, because I love all of you and appreciate all of you, and I want it to be a happy new year, I'm going to post the link to this in the description of this show so you too can watch the video of this idiot <laughs> doing his little <laughs> cannonball his little swim and his subsequent arrest because it is too good to be kept from the world no it's amazing it's going to be on all those cop shows for years to come <laughs> and i'll send you the link so you can watch it after we're done here Bruiser, please it's, it's it's too good you you will laugh hysterically Finally today, our final our final uh, story here, dumb crime, stupid criminals. An ex-con is busted for a New Year's Day dildo battery. <laughs> and I don't mean the thing that's inside the dildo. I mean, he was battered with a dildo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Drive-by dildoing. By the way, do you find the delicious irony... And a guy who looks like that being battered with something bald and bulbous. He looks like a dildo. He does, doesn't he? His, his forehead, his head is too big for his face. It is, yeah. He's got a seven head. That's for sure. His girlfriend, by the way, told him that he had a limp dick. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this is the not safe for work portion of our program, my oh. friend. Mm-hmm. These guys need to stop dating crazy. Uh -huh. They need to just stop dating crazy. Here we go. You ready? After being derided as a limp dick in need of Viagra, an ex-con retrieved a pink dildo from a bedroom shelf and battered his girlfriend with the sex toy. Dear God. It's not what that's used for, man. No, no, no. <laughs> it's made for love and not for fighting. It's not a lightsaber. Investigators charge a 38-year-old Stephen Nerdin <laughs> appropriate attacked, yes. attacked the woman during a 1.20 a.m. confrontation Monday at a residence in, of course, Pinellas County, Florida. Oh, of course. Nerdin and the victim, a court complaint states, were arguing about their relationship when Nerdin became upset ab upon being 
told that he needed an erectile dysfunction medication to address his sexual shortcomings. <laughs> she wasn't holding back. She went blow the belt. <laughs> and then some. Nerden allegedly then took the dildo and shoved it into the 37-year-old victim's mouth. Ow! <laughs> Why? <laughs> The woman also told police that Nerden punched her in the left eye while she tried to push him off. This guy's a jerk. Yeah. After being read his rights, Nerden claimed not to remember using the dildo as a weapon, but recalled that the victim had punched him in the right eye during the altercation. Arrested for domestic battery or dating violence, as they call it in, in Florida. <laughs> Uh, Nerden was booked into the county jail on the first-degree misdemeanor count. He's being held in lieu of $2,500 bond. That's it. That's it, huh? That's it. Then probably can't come across any sex toys. Probably not, and feared they might bite back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A judge has barred Nerden from having any contact with the woman he's alleged to have battered. Additionally, if he secures his release on bond, Nerden will be uh, fitted with a continuous alcohol monitoring device. Okay, yeah. good. No weapon was seized by investigators. That's because a dildo is not a weapon. <laughs> She's just upset because her favorite dildo is taken into evidence and she can't have it till after the trial. That's true, yeah. <laughs> because that's the only thing that performs in that house. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nerden, who has an extensive rap sheet, go figure, was released from state prison four months ago after serving more than 13 years for armed robbery, aggravated assault, and felonious possession of firearms. Well, that explains why he can't get hard. There you go. So that is Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals for today. (laughs) Love it. Oh, good old dildo stories. That's right. You got to love them. Oh, you do. Whether you're picking a lock with them or not using them for what they're intended for, they're all... The Buffalo Bills football field. What's that you broke up there? There's a video from last season of um, someone throwing a bunch of dildos on the Buffalo Bills football field. Yes, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, let's see. They're good for something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they should. I mean, they're good for what they're used for, but I mean, <laughs> they have many other uses. They're, they're like toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, yes, they are. Yeah. They're they're good for. Wipe- I don't recommend wiping your butt with them, but hey, yeah, you will. Well, unless you've got one really stuck in there. I mean, you know, <laughs> just saying. Uh, Bruiser, what you got going on this weekend? Uh, nothing this weekend, but I'm building up to January 20th. Acts of War Games 3. I am officially on George South's War Games team. So I will be entering the two rings surrounded by a steel cage. It's probably the most violent match in professional wrestling. Wow. That's on January 20th in Winston-Salem at the Benton Convention Center. If you can come live, otherwise watch it on the Title Match Network. Nice. Um, It'll be a lot of fun. Kurt Angle will be there. Arn Anderson, Violent J of ICP will be there. Really? Yeah, be a good time. Wow, there you go. Other than that, amlwrestling.com slash training if you want to come train with me. Uh, my class has been growing, which I'm very happy about. And I'm really excited to lead the future underweed, underwater needle pointers into the right direction. Yeah, there you go. Uh, this weekend I'll be up at... Um KNSI, KNSIRadio.com. You can listen to me talk about weather, sports, uh, you know, headlines, all that other stuff. It's general radio work, as we like to call it. So I'll be up there from <laughs> 7 to 9 a.m. 
Um, and uh, that's Central Time, by the way. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, listen to me there. Say hi to me on social media. And, uh, you know, just keep me company on a Saturday. There you go. There you go. Uh, tomorrow on the big show, Supernatural News with myself and Bruiser right here on Darkness Radio. I want to thank you so much for listening to us today on the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday.